The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 16, verses 4 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you that it is eternal. And it never returns void. Lord, I pray that you open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that you would teach us who you are, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Good morning. You know, uh, you know when you really love a band or a mu- musician and then you buy their greatest hits album? And then you get that album and you dive into it and you realize that 75% of the songs on that greatest hits album come from one album you already own. You know what I'm talking about? And you're a fan and it's okay because you like the songs, but you're like, why don't you just buy that album? Because like it's got a lot of deep cuts that kind of round out the artist. You'll like it a lot more, right? If the Old Testament had a greatest hits in my humble opinion, 75% of the, of the tracks on that greatest hits would come from the book of Exodus. And I'm really thankful that we're walking through that book because it really rounds out it to, the, these stories to see them in context. We get to see some of the deep cuts here. And uh, if you remember last week, we talked about uh, the parting of the Red Sea and how God holds the story that Israel couldn't hold themselves. Talk about how easy it is for us to overlay our perspective uh, on Israel from a historic lens of Jesus' day and think of the Israelites and the stories we're reading now in terms of the Pharisees and Jerusalem and the Second Temple and all that. But that would be a mistake because they haven't gotten to that point. That's a New Testament perspective. At this point, if you remember, they'd just been let out of Egypt. They'd been slaves for 430 years in Egypt. And for all intents and purposes, they were pagans, which means they worshiped all kinds of gods. And the reason this matters, it matters for a few reasons. At first, it changes the way you read the scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. See, the Hebrews, they were newly liberated and they're wandering through the desert. And Moses wrote those books to them 
as they're sitting on the banks of the Jordan or wherever they were in, this, in, the, in that part of the journey, Moses wrote the books to them to tell them not just their history, but the history of the world, but mostly to reveal this Yahweh that had introduced himself to them in this new and more profound and deep way. You see, up into this point, if you had gone to an Israelite and you had said, which God is the greatest? What they would have said was, in relation to what? Do you mean like in terms of agriculture, in relation to war, in relation to fertility, maybe the weather? See, their gods functioned like a department store. And they each had different departments, like in a mall. Uh, they had domains and expertise and interests. So when God wrote, when God wrote through Moses, or Moses wrote in Genesis one one, in the beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, God created the heavens and the earth. For a twenty first century goyim like us, we think yada yada. That's a pre roll. Get to me. Get me to something that's devotional. But if you're a Hebrew and you read that, it is shocking. That blows the doors off your categories. It was a polemic. It was an argument that stood in the face not only of their entire worldview, but of the worldview held by everyone. One that was built around this department store God kind of perspective. And what they heard was, when you would read that, is before the beginning began. Before the beginning began, there was Yahweh. And he created it all. He created the world, the waters, the sun, the desert, Hebrews, Egyptians, the weather, the cosmos, all the spiritual entities. He ruled over them. He still rules over them. And he dominates them. And by the way, do you see that pillar of smoke and fire that is leading you out of Egypt, that part of the Red Sea, and is now leading you forward? That's him. That's Yahweh. So if you can just transport yourself to be a pre-Christ Hebrew being led out of the, into the wilderness by Moses, your mind is exploding at this moment. So the first paradigm shift was around who Yahweh was, but the second one was around what he was like. You see, the gods they knew, they were really moody. They were really fickle. They'd be on your side one day, and the next day they were punishing you. And life was this constant battle to stay on their good side. And for the first time, they were considering monotheism, but they were considering a God as, could it be that this God is merciful? Could it be that this is a God, a loving God? They had no reference point for this. And they had this well-earned trust issues, right? Now, that matters for today. I'm going to tell you why. When we get into our story, Exodus 16, what we just read, the people, they had been led across the, the, uh, the, through the Red Sea. They had seen uh, Pharaoh's army destroyed, but they've been on the road about a month now. So that new liberation, new car smell is kind of wearing off. And the adrenaline high of the moment uh, from the, seeing all those miracles beginning to wear down and reality is setting in. More specifically, they're hungry. Their supplies are running low and they've probably beginning to experience some loss, some loss of cattle, 
maybe even the loss of some people. They're traveling with elderly and children, their whole families, and they're starting to get upset, and they're grumbling. It says, you turn to Moses, and they say, why would you go through all this trouble and do all that you did just to bring us out here and bury us in the desert? Are you kidding me? Why would you do that? Now, remember, God's not just, not just trying to distinguish himself from the other gods in terms of his authority. He's trying to distinguish himself from the other gods and how he uses it. He's trying to show his heart. So to reveal he is a God of grace that's not just demanding sacrifices and, and, and examples of fealty before he loves or helps them. He wants them to live by faith in his promises. So the way he does this is he does it through a gift that is both a test and a sign. So what's this gift? They're hungry. So what he says is, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed you every day, in fact. At night, you're going to walk out, and the camp is going to be covered with quail. There's going to be meat everywhere, barbecue, right? And the next morning, you're going to wake up, and you're going to find this delicious bread that's, it said it tastes like honey lying on the ground every morning. It's called manna, which I thought was funny. In Hebrew, the word manna me, or is, comes from manhu, which means what is it? But they shrunk it to mana, which means literally translated as what? <laughs> so God dropped what on the, bread, on the floor every morning for them. So that was the gift, and the test was this. And I'm saying it's a test because God calls it a test. They were only allowed to gather what they needed for the day, one omer of bread. And for those that are confused, one omer is one-tenth of an ephah, so we hope we clear that up. It was a basket, one basket of bread, and they were allowed to keep it for one day, except on Saturdays they would go out and they'd gather two days' worth for the Sabbath. But if you tried to keep it for longer than a day, the next day you would wake up and it had worms in it, maggots, and it smelled. So you didn't want to do that. You didn't want that in your tent. This was a command. And God said it was the way that he would test them. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I hear the word test in God, my blood pressure starts to go up. It makes me really nervous because, I mean, if I'm being tested, it means that there's a chance I could fail it. And if I can fail it, I'm in trouble. And because at some point, if these tests continue, I know it's just a matter of time before I actually do. And if God's dealing with them, the chosen people, like that, there's no question he's dealing with me like that. What about all this grace stuff that we talk about? Now, I want to unpack this whole idea of God's test in this moment for them. To test something, anything, is to ask a question of it, right? So I'm going to test to find out what something or someone is made of, what they're capable of, uh, what they believe, what's the content of their heart, what's the content of their character. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. God loves doing all these kind of tests. Here's the rub. God never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. Fair? God doesn't answer, ask a question he doesn't know the answer to. He knew Israel didn't trust him. 
He knew they would disobey. He knew they would try to sneak extra baskets of bread and quail, which he did, which they did again and again. So why did he test them? What does this testing mean? Two reasons. First, God might have known how distrustful and disobedient Israel was, but Israel didn't know. They didn't know. We never see ourselves with that kind of clarity until the storm comes in. We can see it in other people really well. We see their flaws, and when it comes to us, oh, we're nuanced. Oh, my distrust, well, if you only knew, look at my situation. So the first reason God, is, he, he knew how distrustful they, or disobedient they were, but Israel didn't. And the second reason is that the tests that God gives are more about growing, shaping, and transforming the hearts of his people to pry their fingers from around their lives to receive his grace than they are about measuring the content of their heart. He was trying to grow them and, and, and move them forward to pry their fingers from around their lives. See, here's what I mean. Anytime you experience a, a, a commandment of God, don't do this or do do that. Don't gather the bread. Look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, do not murder. You gotta consider what it's saying not to do. Yes, don't murder. Okay, I'm good with that. Don't kill anyone unjustly. But in order to capture the heart behind God, for those things to be a window into the heart of God, you have to consider the positive implications of the law. Here's what I mean by that. You, in other words, you have to say, when God says, do not murder, what he's really saying there is, I am a God who, of, of life. I value life. I preserve life. I celebrate life. Only I can make it. I want it to flourish. If you want to be with me, if you want to follow me, love life. Don't just not kill Become people who are about its flourishing. Nurture it to its fullness. See its value in me. So why does that matter? In, the, in our story, God's command is this. Don't gather more than one day's worth of bread and meat, except on Sunday. The larger point God's making is he's saying to them is this. I'm your God, and I desperately want to lead you and to provide for you. You have been slaves for 430 years with very little you could rely on or trust in. Of course you're scared. Of course you're gonna try and gather more bread and gather more meat, but I wanna set you free. I wanna serve you. That is not who you are anymore. I've got this. You don't need to store the food that I'm providing you. You don't even need to do the hard work of carrying more than one basket every time. I'm going to deliver meat every night to you. I'm going to deliver bread every morning. And on Sundays, I'm going to make it so it lasts an extra day so you don't have to worry about even picking it up on those days so you can replenish your heart, so that you can rest, that you can focus. I see you. You need rest, and I'm here to provide it. I know you're going to fight with me on this. I know who you are, I know where you came from, and I know you're gonna, you're gonna struggle with this, but this test is something that we're gonna practice over and over here again. See, what makes God's commandment here a, a commandment of grace? It is not about developing strength where we're weak. It's about developing faith in God to move them, uh, to move them and meet them where they are weak with his strength. So what do you do, though, 
when the weakness you have, when the inability that you have is around your ability to exercise faith in the first place. That's where I'm weak. Because I'll tell you, when my life gets hard, when I have that bad day, my faith, it's, it's probably one of the first things that goes out the window. That's the hardest thing for me to hang on to. But manna was a provision, it was a test, and it was also a sign. It was a sign pointing to something that was coming. And in the book of John, John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Takes a little boy's sack lunch and feeds 5,000 people. And he says, I am the bread of life, living bread that comes down from heaven. I am your provision. And the Jewish people's response to that, do you know what they said? How are we supposed to believe that? How are we supposed to believe that? In the same way we say that when our lives get hard. And Jesus' response to them is the same to us. Nobody comes to me unless the, unless the, Father, sent me, uh, the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. That's Jesus' statute. Nobody comes unless the Father brings them. What is Jesus really saying here? What's the positive implication? Like Israel, I have you. I'm holding your life, your needs, and even your faith in my hands. Ephesians 2, it says, faith is a gift from God. He grows it. Yes, we are unable to squeeze faith out of our hearts, but he's able to plant it there. And the way he does that, the way he moves, is the, the father pursues and he comes and he stirs our hearts. And if you're here today and you're curious about who that Jesus is and you're asking that question, the truth is you're not pursuing God. He's pursuing you. If you are in Christ and you call yourself a Christian, God is not pursuing you. He has caught you. That is the gospel. He has caught you, and he will never let you go. That is the meat and potatoes of what we just did here, this baptism. The idea that, hey, we serve a promise-keeping God. Come, you have caught us. You have, these are your children. You will never let go. You don't have to spend your life trying to gather baskets of faith because it is the Father who has gathered you. It is the Father that has gathered you. When we are in pain, we do not fall out of his basket. When we're hurting, it does not fall out of his basket. When we lack faith, we have not fallen out of his basket. The call of Christ is that we step into this journey and we realize that he is the one that holds on to us. And when we can use wisdom, we don't double down on the pain of our lives, trying to squeeze faith from places we cannot. And we lean into a father that we know has gathered us. And this will never spoil. And it will fill us until the last day, as Christ says, when he will raise us up. That's the message of baptism. And that is the message of the gospel. Amen. Pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the, the, that you are the giver of all things good. 
Jesus, I thank you that you are, that the manna we read about in Exodus was a finger pointing at you, that it was a sign that said that you are the one that gathers us. We love you and we need you, Lord. Please give us this measure of faith. Give us eyes that see, ears that hear. I thank you, Lord, for who you are. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.